This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Joel Brockner is the Philip Hedelman Professor of Business at Columbia University's Business School. He's the Academic Director of Columbia Caseworks, author of The Process Matters, Engaging and Equipping People for Success. And Joel is a leading authority on a variety of psychological issues in the workplace, including managing change, leadership, decision-making, and cross-cultural differences in work behavior. In this episode, Joel and I talk about his book, The Process Matters, and what he's found in his research on what works, what doesn't, when striving to engage employees so all can indeed be successful, being fair and transparent matters. Sharing accurate information is important. The onboarding process matters, as does giving people some voice and control in how they can best contribute to an organization's mission. Joel addresses the fallacy of not having enough time to devote to developing people in this way, noting that an ounce of prevention is well worth a predictable pound of cure. Repairing damage from unfairness is often far more costly, such as an employee turnover that's not wanted. It's usually a smarter investment to develop people and to retain them than it is to replace. And the experience of fairness in the process of how things go at work, that spills over in positive and negative ways, if it's unfair, into other parts of our lives. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would please rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts so that others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from a leading expert on psychological issues at work. It's Professor Joel Brockner. Joel, welcome to Work and Life. Stu, thank you. Thanks for that kind introduction, and it's great to join you. Well, thanks Thanks for taking the time to uh, to be on the show to talk about your, your latest work, uh, which is about the process matters. You know, our, uh, uh, our society, our business world is so driven by measurable outcomes, by data, by results. You know, we've got the horse race of the election here. Uh, and all the analysis and meta-analysis that's happening around that. You've done decades of really important research on decision-making and most recently captured your work and that of many, many others on not so much the substantive outcomes but the process by which decisions get made, and the fairness inherent in that. Why, why did you pursue that? Why does it matter to us? Well, 
it's a, you know, it's a great question uh, because we hear a lot, as you said, Stu, about um, <clears throat> you know the outcome matters, right? We mm-hmm. we live in a results-oriented society. You hear expressions like "at the end of the day" or "the bottom line is." Uh, a very outcome-oriented approach. I love good outcomes. I'd rather win than lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what my my basic argument is that if you want to be sustainably successful, I mean you being mm-hmm. who are running uh, organizations, that you have to care about outcomes, but you also have to care about the process through which you arrive at that outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the short term, maybe not so much to worry about the process, but if you want to be, as I said, sustainably successful over the long term, we need to get there, and we need to get there in the right way. Uh, so I, what does I always that mean? get nervous. I always get nervous when you know, when managers say to their people, Hmm. um, I don't care how you get there, just get there. Hmm. Right now, in some ways, it's an empowering statement. They're basically giving people liberty to do things in the way that they see fit. But it's also a potentially dangerous statement, because it could, Hmm. among other things, invite unethical behavior. I mean, taken literally, I mean, Mm -hmm. if if I were to be hearing my boss say, uh, I don't care how you get there, just get there, mean boss, I could even do it in an unethical way, that would be okay, Mm -hmm. or I could do it in a not unethical, but but a um, maybe immoral or illegal way. Was mm. that okay as well? So, so there, there have to uh, be some limits, some some restraints on behavior, because we do oh. know that uh, you know to be really clear on the ends and flexible about the means for achieving them is is a recipe for engagement and and motivation of of teams and employees. Totally. So so we want to give people freedom, but you're suggesting that there is a right way and a wrong way to do that. Well. I'm, I'm suggesting that the expression, I don't care how you get there, mm-hmm. just get there, can be taken too far, Yes. In, in which case people don't really pay attention to the way in which they get there. Uh, and so, um, you know, doing things in a fair way, in a humane way, um, you know, there's a couple of ways to talk about the process. What do we mean by a high-quality process? Yes. Right? It's, yes, please define that for us. Yeah, so partly it has to do with you know, what I would call attributes of the process. So if the process is fair, uh, and then a lot of things go into a fair process. Okay. So uh, were people allowed to participate in decisions? Were the reasons for the decisions explained to them? Mm-hmm. Were the decisions based upon accurate information? Was it transparent? Was it a level playing field? I mean, there's a lot of elements that go into a fair process. Um, so what are and so those are the crucial ones. Whether people are are able to provide input, whether they understand the rationale for decisions, ultimately that decisions were made on a, the basis of accurate information, that there was level playing field. I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. Well, that everybody has an equal chance, where people have a okay. reasonably equal chance for uh, being successful. Uh, the same standards are being applied to everyone. Uh, so okay. the, the principle is known as consistency, for example, mm-hmm. or, or more specifically. So those are the elements of what produces a fair process. A fair process. And, and you know, there's, there's other ways to talk about a process being done well, so besides fairness. And then, you know, we can focus on not so much attributes of the process, but how it makes people feel, uh, how the process makes people feel. So... Uh, a process hmm. is a good one, for example, if people on the receiving end felt like um, their sense of esteem was bolstered or hmm. it affirmed their identity or it gave them a sense of control, esteem, identity, control. Those uh, experiences that we have 
that are very motivational and so that if if a process is done in a way that enables us to feel that way, Mm -hmm. then that's also a high-quality process. Well, we know that uh, all of those translate into positive uh, outcomes in other domains of life by way of spillover. So we know that uh, if people feel a sense of esteem at work, and this has been historically, traditionally more true for fathers than mothers, although that seems to be changing, that, they, uh, that their kids do better. If, if, if your dad is uh, feeling good about himself in his role at work, he's going to be a better father. Absolutely. That probably doesn't surprise you. No, no, absolutely. That would make perfect sense. You know, so to, just to give an example of what I meant by uh, a process that gives, uh, you know, affords mm-hmm. people a sense of esteem, so a typical way that companies will bring people in, you know, the onboarding process, mm-hmm. uh, as it's called, you might say to the new employee, this is what we stand for, this is our values, um, this is what we're good at, and this is why you should be happy to be a new member of our organization. Um, that's fun, all well and good, mm-hmm. um, but a recent study suggested that if at the time that people are brought in, they are given an extra hour uh, to... Uh, just articulate what are they good at, what's, what are their signature strengths, what, what really identifies mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. Um, and how would they imagine enacting those things on the job. So just add an extra half hour, extra hour onto the socialization process. Hmm. Uh, not that people are given license to do anything that they want, but at least their views are being seriously considered, and if the organization thought it plausible for them to take the employee up on their suggestion, they would. And what the study showed was that just that extra hour caused uh, six months later, higher customer satisfaction, uh, a lot less turnover. This was in an organization where there was a lot of of turnover, Mm -hmm, and they found mm -hmm. that it went down dramatically just by spending an extra hour during that socialization process. So uh, it was a socialization process that enabled people to feel a sense of esteem or affirm their sense of identity, and it had huge positive payoff for months later. So so when we talk about the process, we're talking about a sense of fairness. We're talking about how decisions and the way things are make people feel in terms of their esteem, uh, their sense of control over their lives, their environment, and their identity. And by that, you mean what exactly? Well, that it, it allows them to... Um, to feel that that the decision process recognized them for who they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, again, this idea of a of identify your signature strengths. Mm-hmm. You know, a strength speaks to your esteem. It's what you're good at. But a signature strength is it's something that you in particular are really good at. So it affirms your sense of identity as well as mm-hmm. affirms your sense of esteem. And and so important in that. Uh, element of how people feel as a result of the process is uh, being um, uh, seen as a unique individual that has a particular value. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, And differentiated from the value that other people bring. That's right. That's right. So that's why I say it's not simply still a function of the attributes of the process, like the fairness of the process. Mm -hmm. It's However they're doing it, can they do it in a way that allows people to have these kinds of psychological experiences, mm-hmm. which, again, makes people, by definition, feel good about themselves, but it makes them you know, more productive, um, <clears throat> more satisfied with their jobs, um, 
you know, and as you imply in your the whole purpose of the show, probably allows for just an overall better life experience. Yeah, well, if you feel good about yourself and you feel valued as an individual contributing uh, in a unique way and have a sense of control over the things that happen to you, all of those uh, aspects of a work experience are going to spill over in a positive way to the other parts of your life. Totally. Um, so, um, you know, we we, uh, we focus a lot on the show uh, on um, creating uh, work arrangements that enable flexibility and control. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could speak to how your model of uh, understanding the importance of the, the process by which decisions get made, uh, how it speaks to listeners who are looking for some guidance on how to negotiate, say, uh, a more flexible work arrangement that would allow them to be successful not just at work, but in the other parts of their lives. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, there's, you know, there's... Uh, there's interesting work um, on what's, in fact, one of your colleagues at, uh, at Wharton, Adam Grant, um, is a co-author of, of this study, um, on what's called job crafting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the basic idea here is that, uh, you know, you have a job description, but people are allowed to uh, take up their jobs in a variety of ways. And organizations vary in terms of how much they allow people to do that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but you know, to the extent that you can um, be given input into either what gets done, or how things get done, or when things get done, um, you know, you're allowed to, as I said, craft the contours of your job. Uh, and that's again one of these experiences that allows people to uh, have this. Uh, what I call this experience of esteem mm-hmm. and identity, because first of all, you're given control. Uh, you're you're allowed to have input into, into how things are going to be done. Mm-hmm. So that's the control part of esteem, identity, and control. Uh, and the other thing is that if people are given license to how they're going to craft their work arrangements, they're probably going to be bringing more of themselves into mm-hmm. it. Uh, so that's the identity element of esteem, identity, and control. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the research shows that just here's what's so interesting about this, too, is that sometimes a little bit can go a long way. You know, sometimes it doesn't require organizations to change things all that dramatically in terms mm-hmm. of time, money, other kinds of resources. Uh, sometimes just making small tweaks in how things are done uh, can allow people to have these experiences of esteem or identity or control. And as a result, have just much better work experiences. Yes. More productivity, more morale, all sorts of good things. And it doesn't cost a lot. We're talking about um, small changes uh, that can have a, a really big impact mm-hmm. um, and in having people feel better about themselves, uniquely contributing to some larger goal and and a greater sense of control, uh, and how important that is in in bringing the whole self to work, which is uh, what we're we're trying to uh, help people to understand how to do. Can you give an example um, about how that has played out in either your own experience or what you have seen? Yeah, and it's not just in the workplace. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. it's other kinds of organizations as well. So there was a uh, a famous study uh, done a number of years ago at, looking at um, nursing uh, residents of a nursing home. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is the idea of how a little bit can go a long way. 
um, and a very simple study. Uh, everybody, as I said, was a resident in a nursing home, and the staff was trying to do right by everybody there. Um, in, and in one group, they were given a little bit more control. This is the small tweaks can go a long way theme. So one group was told, um, here's a plant, uh, and we'd like you to care for the plant. You have to water it. You have to make sure it gets enough light. I mean, we're not talking about a big responsibility, mm-hmm. but it was more the symbolism of it all. They mm-hmm. were given some responsibility. Or another example would be um, they were told, you're going to be able to watch a movie one night this week. Uh, and why don't you select the night of the week that you want to view it? Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's your call. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other group was told, uh, they were given the same plan, uh, and the staff, and again, very well-intended, said, uh, you don't need to do a thing, we'll take care of it for you. And in terms of that movie, well, you know, we'll, we'll decide. You don't need to, um, you know, exert the effort to figure out what night you're going to watch the movie. We'll do that for you. Just so, relax. Right. I'm sorry? Just relax. Sit Just back. Just relax. Exactly. Leave it, leave it. Sit back, relax, and let, leave the flying to us. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so, again, very small differences. And yet, when they followed those two groups uh, for weeks and months afterwards, they found that the people who were given more control were more alert, more physically active. They were in better health. And actually, um, there was even some evidence that over the long haul, over a couple-year period, the death rate uh, was actually lower in the group that was given a uh, s- small bits of control relative to those in the other condition. So, so small things can go a long way uh, in work organizations and other kinds of organizations. So you know, the, you, one of the points you make in, in your book, The Process Matters, is that there are tons of solutions out there that don't cost a lot. And this is just a good example of one. So can you say more about the importance of of really uh, opening up your frame of mind as a manager to those low-cost solutions that can have big impact on on your people? Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head. I think, uh, you know, managers need to uh, be more open-minded. We understand that they're busy. Um, We understand they're operating in a constrained environment. Uh, but, you know, to be open to the possibility that even small stuff can make a big difference. Uh, and, and by the way, sometimes it's not so simple. Sometimes it's, it's a bigger intervention that is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes even those bigger interventions will, um, will pay for themselves. Uh, sure. So it's a little bit of pay now or pay later. I'll, g- I'll give you an example. I, I oftentimes speak to groups that... Columbia Executive Education Programs and mm-hmm. other places, um, uh, private clients as well, and I'll be talking to them about change management. And there's also a lot to, the book go, talks a lot about what do we mean by a well-managed change process, and lots of people have written about this, John Cotter and mm-hmm. Tajik and Mike Beer at Harvard Business School have written very persuasively about it. Uh, and there, when we're talking about managing change, there's a fair amount that goes into handling that process well. Uh, and I'll oftentimes lay those things out to managers that I'm working with, and they'll say, oh, this sounds great on paper, Joel, but, you know, we don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. And they're quite right. It does take time to explain why and to involve people in decision-making and to train them for new behaviors and uh, to perhaps to give them some advance notice and plan things. It really does yeah, it does take a fair amount. This is not one of these small tweaks kinds of deals. Some investment is required in a good process. Totally. 
totally. But uh, you were about to say. Well, and so, and what I often hear when I say, why don't you, if you, you know, they nod politely, and I'll say, why don't you do more of this? And they'll say, well, we just don't have time for it. Right. Uh, and so my answer to that is, again, with all due respect, and it does take time, uh, well, if you don't do these things well now, if you don't handle the change process well now, you're going to create a bigger mess for yourself in terms of people being resistant, dragging mm-hmm. their feet, not being on board with the change effort. Uh, and now, tell me, later, are you going to, do you think you're going to have the time later um, <laughs> to, to kind of correct things for, uh, you know, to try to remedy things that you, didn't do in the, uh, that you didn't do right in the first place? And I would even say, Stu, it's not even so much a matter of pay now or pay later, although that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. I think the, the expression that comes closer to it is the, the ounce of prevention mm-hmm. and the pound of cure. In other words, pay a little bit or sometimes more than a little bit now to handle a change process well. Uh, and if you do, it will more than pay off for itself, or let's put it this way, you're going to have to pay a lot more later to do the change process well mm-hmm. if you don't do it right in the first place. Because the process matters, right, in terms of motivation, engagement. Uh, what do we know about, uh, I mean, you, you've been asserting, and, and I know that it's based on evidence and, uh, and common sense, uh, that, uh, that when you engage people, when you make them feel good about how decisions are getting done, that they're going to feel better. But what do we know, if you could sum up the essence of the research evidence, for how indeed that does ultimately affect uh, organizational group, team, and indeed perhaps family and community outcomes? Yeah, no, well, it, it, it's not simply about making people feel good. Uh, mm-hmm. It's about bottom line productivity um that's you know that's that's um which to me uh you know productivity is the is the bottom line for an organizational psychologist right that ultimately translates of course into bottom line bottom line you know it's financial bottom line so when people are engaged with a change process an organization needed to downsize for example or it needed to grow whatever the change happens to be to the extent that they are embracing the change, engaged with mm-hmm. it, saying things like, this is great, we should have done this a long time ago, mm-hmm. that's not just about making them feel good, mm-hmm. although that's certainly a good byproduct. That means they're more on board, they're working on behalf of you know, organizational goals, and you know, the importance of that is immeasurable. So what are some of the other obstacles? You have people telling you, oh, this is going to take too much time to, you know, to explain things, to involve them, get input. Uh, to train people, to give people advance notice. I just don't have time. I'm just going to tell them what to do, and we're going to move on with it. Uh, what are some? What are some of the other uh, obstacles that people face in trying to affect positive change? Again, great question. Uh, it's, it's sort of a puzzle, right? Well, if we kind of know this, how come we don't do it? And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so one one answer is that actually sometimes it's not as obvious as it might seem, uh, or the small tweaks can go a long way sometimes is not so obvious. So sometimes it's a knowledge gap. Uh, we just didn't appreciate it. That's why I think, you know, not just plugging my book, but reading other studies like, you know, other books and other, um, you know, articles sim- similar to the point, I think helps managers be more informed and they have more, you know, kind of a richer understanding of indeed how much, just how much the process matters. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of, uh, what I would call skill, the interpersonal skill needed to mm. pull things off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a number of years ago, I was um, doing a presentation at an organization that was downsizing for the very first time, mm. and the 
pain in the room was palpable. Uh, and I could feel quite literally everybody's pain. Uh, and, you know, I hung in there and tried to give them some guidance, but I could understand how, you know, the, the, the urge people have to hide when others around them sometimes are feeling, you know, depressed or angry or anxious. You kind of want to hide sometimes mm-hmm. uh, just to kind of uh, cope yourself. Um, and that's, in a way, the worst thing that managers can do. Just when they feel that temptation <clears throat> to run away is when they need to make themselves more accessible. But that's hard, right? Uh, so sometimes it's a, you know, it's a matter of... It's risky. It's risky, and you have, to have, you have to have the courage to kind of stand up and make yourself available um, <clears throat> to tell someone that, you know, you're very sorry, but you're going to have to lay them off. That's one of the you know, really mm-hmm. difficult challenges for managers, and the books have been written about it being one of managers' toughest jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to have the emotional intelligence or the social skill to kind of pull that off gracefully uh, is not easy, right? Uh, and that's, I think, another obstacle. So we have mm-hmm. lack of time, sometimes a lack of knowledge, sometimes the lack of interpersonal skill needed to pull these difficult processes off. Um, and then, oh, by the way, sometimes there are other factors, other motivational reasons. Um, so it's not a matter of I don't, it's not a matter of I can't do it. It's that I don't want to do mm. it. Um, so, for example, just a quick one, um, <clears throat> oftentimes you have to uh, allow people to have input into decisions. And some people would say, well, especially command and control managers would say, well, if I give them input, then... They mm-hmm. have more power. I'm reducing my own power. So just philosophically or out of fear, uh, one might be reluctant to engage uh, employees in, in providing input on a decision. Yeah, it could be philosophical or it could mm-hmm. be, yeah, more f- the, the, okay, kind of this view of this win-lose, zero-sum mm-hmm. view. Well, the more authority I give to others, the less authority I have for myself. Yes. Let me just ask you one, one final question. In, in your book, The Process Matters, uh, what, what can readers find that's going to help them, both managers as well as employees, uh, to produce a better process uh, in the decisions that they are facing? What's the essence of it? Well, the, the essence of it is we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give ideas of what goes into a high-quality process. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about the obstacles there's also a bunch of inventories in the appendix of the book that allows people to assess themselves on, you know, where do they come out on the very factors that we've been talking about, you know, throughout the book. Uh, so I always encourage readers to, you know, turn to Appendix C, for example. If you want to see mm-hmm. uh, how good you are as an agent of change, well, here's a whole bunch of process dimensions. And fill out this instrument and see where you come out. Even better, get other people to rate you on those very same mm-hmm. dimensions. Uh, and then you'll have a more informed view of not only what makes for a healthy process, but where you come out on those same mm-hmm. dimensions. And that, of course, can inform your development and growth as, as a leader, as an employee, perhaps as a father, brother, friend, uh, in being able to produce uh, outcomes that are better for the process by which they were achieved. Absolutely. Joel, well, uh, well, let's do. well uh, you've, you've done it, and, and we're all grateful to you uh, for producing this work and, and the other great work over the course of your uh, really important and, and uh, significant career as an organizational psychologist. Joel, thank you so much for joining me. Stu, it's been my total pleasure, and thanks for having me. Well, 
Well, I hope you found my conversation with Joel Brockner to be helpful and informative, as I did, and that it helps you to think about how you treat employees and how you are treated at work. In your organization or group, is there room to voice one's opinion? Are policies explained and do they make sense? What happens if this does not hold true? These questions lead me to offer you this challenge, this invitation. Think about whether there is a way that you can change how you interact with those at work to make the process a bit more fair, more transparent, even a small change, so all parties might then feel more engaged and be more productive. Let me know what you discover. If you come up with something and actually try it, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch with me at friedman at or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.